With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics, each week Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In today's episode, I visit with Tony Charles. Tony is the Chief Client Officer at Steel Compliance Solutions. We consider the recently released Steel White Paper third-party due diligence creating a credible and defensible program. Due diligence is a topic that is always on the forefront of compliance practitioners' minds, and this paper and Tony's podcast will give you several different ways to think through both automated due diligence, how to tier your due diligence, how to do a risk assessment around due diligence, and due diligence going forward. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, a voice of compliance, back for another episode. And today I have with me Tony Charles. Tony is the Chief Clients Officer at Steel, and we're going to take up a topic that has been around in compliance for quite some time, that being third parties and due diligence, but a topic that's still on the front of minds of many compliance practitioners. So, Tony, first of all, uh, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks so much, Tom. Really appreciate you having me. Tony, the um, thing that uh, kind of led to this podcast was just an excellent white paper uh, delivered by Steele to the compliance community entitled Third Party Due Diligence Creating a Credible and Defensible Program. I wanted to start with that, that document and ask, what was the genesis of of that document uh, from steel to the greater compliance community? It's actually a white paper that we've uh, put out before, and uh, it's updated fairly regularly. But to your point, this is a, a topic that's been around for a long time. And, and I'll tell you, it's always a topic of great interest. So uh, thanks for reaching out to, to talk it through. Um, you know, we, we've had the uh, privilege of serving hundreds of large multinational companies in the you know, both in the development and the ongoing support of their third-party management programs. And it's always interesting. I I ask myself the question, why do we see companies invest more in their third-party due diligence programs when, you know, they're under scrutiny, right? Uh, They're they're either being investigated or they're preparing to self-disclose. That's not all companies. Certainly many companies are investing in their programs outside of that sort of pressure. But um, it is interesting that, 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 and it seems like an obvious answer, but what I, I find so interesting is that when you read the guidance, you read the, the uh, publications from Justice and SEC, for example, the 2012 guidance or the last year's uh, guidance on corporate compliance programs from Justice, or you read some of their counterparts in foreign, foreign jurisdictions like the AFA's guidance 
and two years ago, it's really easy to see what regulators and law enforcement regimes are looking for. And what they look for is, you know, clearly risk-based due diligence on third parties. And we, we, um, we see that there's a lot of confusion in the market as we talk to multinational corporations about their programs. Certainly third parties as a whole, um, represent a, a large risk. I, I really, I'm, you're probably well aware of the Stanford Law School, uh, in collaboration with Sullivan and Cromwell. They have a great website called the FCPA Clearinghouse. Some really fantastic stats on, uh, existing and publicly available, uh, uh, information on, on existing cases, FCPA cases. And that shows that 90% of FCPA disclosed cases over the history of the FCPA involved third parties, uh, in those, in those, um, actions. And so, Again, it, it really reinforces the importance of third-party due diligence, um, especially given how difficult third parties can be, right, in, in managing compliance. By definition, they're operating outside of your company, and, and so, uh, but yet they're operating on behalf of your company, so it's, they can be hard to, to manage. So those are really, I think, the core reasons we're, we're looking at uh, providing this kind of uh, information. Tony, where should a company or compliance practitioner begin to think through this process? Let me break it into two different sort of uh, starting points. Um, when you talk about what, where should where should someone start, I think the first is the obvious, right? When a company doesn't have a program or their program is very basic, say policies and procedures only, maybe there's, you know, it's really a paper program, so little oversight, their internal controls may be quite, you know, not quite as strong as they need to be. That's the obvious. But I think another important starting point, I'll use air quotes there on starting point, should be kind of during the normal course of a compliance department's regular review, whether that's annually or some other periodicity. And, and I say this is another starting point because, you know, every compliance program uh, should be reviewed on a regular basis. And um, they should be, companies should obviously be benchmarking their program if they can with peer companies. Um, and you'll hear this constantly from me, right? We have a roadmap from regulators. And if you look at last year's uh, Justice Department document, the evaluation of cor- cor- corporate compliance programs, I think it was published at the end of April. There's an entire section entitled Continuous Improvement, Periodic Testing and Review. Um, I, I of, often review uh, or refer to um, uh, the standard form attachment in, you know, Department, Department of Justice, DPAs, and NPAs, and you can find these on their website. You look at that attachment C, it's about corporate compliance programs. And the last section talks all about monitoring and testing and making sure your compliance program is uh, contemporary, that it's meeting, you know, it's keeping up with industry and international standards. And the, in, the, the language is vague, but that ensures the document uh, stands for a long time and really speaks to the importance of continuously updating the program. So all that to say, when you're looking at um, where to begin, um, it's not just for companies who don't have something yet. It's, it's a concept that should be employed um, by all companies, you know, periodically. And so let's, you know, we can address your question sort of, um, uh, to, or, or to address your question, let me, let me break it into three groups. Sort of, um, how, do, how do you begin? You begin with planning, implementing, and executing, right? So planning really includes um, a company assessing where they're at conducting that gap assessment or gap analysis, um, looking at their whole third-party compliance framework. There's a lot to include in that, Tom. There's, uh, there are so many elements that you need to consider, third-party risk criteria, you know, what information you want to collect from the third party, how are you going to collect that information, you know, what aspects of your contracting, for example, might you need to review or potentially update, such as audit clauses and contracts with higher-risk third parties, 
how do you ensure your program isn't going to implicate other statutes such as GDPR? We have the new California Consumer Protection Act, the CCPA. Um, these are things that our clients, uh, we're constantly working with our clients on. Um, you know, how, how do you ensure that the third party understands its compliance obligations? For example, how do you employ training? Um, and I think one of the really important ones is how do you, you know, what do you measure? What, how do you define your KPIs? And so, uh, I think this, uh, there's a lot to consider in the planning stage. Um, one of the areas that I think companies uh, underestimate uh, the level of effort that it's going to take to get their arms around is data. And I'm sure you've seen this, Tom, in your own career and working with companies and talking with companies. It's incredibly complex arena uh, when you look at data, especially for larger companies where they're, they're growing through acquisition. They're, they have many different data sources. The data is rarely consistent. It's rarely normalized, meaning... You know, one part of the business calls a third-party type uh, one thing, while, you know, another calls it something completely different. The nomenclature is not the same. Um, it makes it quite challenging. And so data is in one of those areas I think that's really important to get your arms around. Um, that's, uh, I think, the sort of uh, the core of the planning piece. And then you get into the implementation stage. And I, I always, uh, uh, we always uh, suggest uh, and consult clients to really engage a multifunctional team at, at frankly, even at the uh, planning stage, but especially at the implementation stage. It's so critical that you get the different functions that are going to be involved in and touch or be affected by your compliance program um, in this stage before you're executing the program. So IT, finance, procurement, um, legal compliance, obviously the business, all of these functions really need to be involved um, early and often in the planning and execution or an implementation so that when you get to execution, um, all key stakeholders are, are already well aligned to the program. Uh, and then finally, execution. I think, you know, that it, it seems obvious, but, uh, you know, you get the program rolling, uh, uh, part of that, it needs to include uh, auditing and monitoring the program, making sure it's effective. I mean, this is one of the, the hallmarks, right, of this new sort of the Department of Justice guidance that says, does your program work? Is the program effective? And, and how do you measure effectiveness, right? So um, this is probably a, a, a good place to introduce the importance of analytics. And I can't, I, I can't emphasize enough how important it is. How, I don't think there's ever been as strong a call to action as there is today to make your program data-based. And again, you think about the new DOJ guidance that, that asks one of those fundamental questions, does the program work? And you can't answer that without implementing a robust, a robust analytics uh, component to your program. So, uh, you know, the, I think the theme or the moral of that is a well-designed program should consider the KPIs in advance of implementation. It should be part of the design of the program if you're looking ahead and planning for what are you going to try to answer uh, long term. Tony, what do you see as the levels of due diligence? There's uh, So there's really three distinct levels, Tom, and then there's lots of combinations and permutations, you know, in between each level. But at the core, there's sort of three basic levels. There's the, the uh, database level. This is an automated check where you're plugging names into some sort of system and it's running, you know, it's screening against whatever lists or data, uh, uh, data sets are available in that particular system, something most companies are doing anyway, right? These are, these are standard checks. Procurement is often already doing these, finances doing these using, you know, Dun & Bradstreet or, or, or whomever uh, to do their standard checks. Um, that's the basic level. 
The next level is a human level analysis at, at open source. So it can get confusing sometimes in the, in the um, investigation world. Open source intelligence or OSINT is often referred to. It can be considered, considered uh, uh, partly uh, automation. But in, in this world of corporate compliance, we generally consider open source intelligence uh, human analyst derived and driven. So someone who's actually looking for information, um, analyzing, assessing that, curating that information into some sort of due diligence report. And then finally, uh, the, the human, uh, um, excuse me, the field-based uh, human intelligence. So um, again, the three levels are sort of database checks, which are automated and then open source or field level. I'll start with the field level, um, just sort of to describe sort of the advantages and disadvantages, right? So clearly field level have, it's the most robust uh, it's they're they're deep. Uh, it's local. If you're doing it right, you know you've got local resources looking into uh, that third party uh, uh, history uh, and any r- potential uh, risk areas or red flags. Uh, what's one of the most important things to consider? Uh, because uh, there are so many sort of pitfalls or 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 potential landmines in the conduct of field investigations, investigations especially. Um, uh, when you're sending someone out to actually conduct that work on the ground, uh, you want to make sure that you're, you're following, you know, you're only collecting information that's legally obtainable. And there are a number of examples that we've seen in the past where um, companies have fallen uh, uh, sort of afoul of various laws locally. Um, you know, probably one of the most uh, well-publicized cases was the GSK case and Peter Humphreys, owner of China Wise, who was representing GSK and ended up, he and his wife ended up in jail for a couple of years in China. And I mean, it was a highly publicized case, but um, they were accused of procuring information uh, illegally, et cetera. So, you know, the idea that you're uh, gathering information that's legally obtainable, you're following our local local laws is really critical. So that's one one important aspect to consider. But, but with that said, the uh, field investigation clearly gives you the best information possible uh, based on, uh, uh, you know, a sort of a composite perspective of what you can identify uh, from a risk standpoint on a third-party relationship. You're getting um, deeper information. You're getting it locally. Often you're getting information that you just can't seem to get, you know, elsewhere. So that those are the sort of big picture advantages. Disadvantages, cost. It's going to be the mo- more expensive, right? The more, uh, uh, the more you look for, the more it's going to cost. Um, there's a time component. It takes longer because you're looking for more. It's a broader scope. Um, but as I said, there's there's some real advantages to it as well. So it needs to be employed in the right context, and maybe I'll talk about that in a moment. But um, I'll continue with sort of the the next level, which is sort of the, the desktop-based or web-based research. And that's a great application ac- across your medium-risk third parties, or maybe maybe your medium to high, you know, to sort of the lower high end if you have a multi-tier risk model. This is a, a there's some great advantages to web-based. Um, you're getting a, 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 a much deeper information you get from databases. Uh, you're getting, uh, uh, if it's done right, you have a multilingual analyst looking at both local media as well as international media and both local language and, and English. Um, these are lower cost for sure, significantly lower. Uh, uh, but they're also, from a disadvantage, you can't apply it across your entire population. It's just not practical, but again, because of the expense. Um, but, uh, these are typically, you know, several hundred dollars, uh, sort of thing. So uh, you're not going to apply that to tens of thousands of third parties necessarily. Uh, you can certainly though, uh, get some really great benefit from applying it to that medium risk tier of third parties. Uh, I think, uh, the database checks are, are really have been a great addition to 
uh, the conduct of due diligence for corporations as the technologies emerged. You know, we employ an, an AI-driven or artificial intelligence-driven technology within our platform to help um, companies uh, uh, screen the masses of third parties that they have. So someone might have 30 or 40 or 50,000 third parties, even five or 10,000 third parties. It's a significant number of, of relationships that you, you don't want to, you know, you can't afford to do the higher level due diligence, but this gives you a meaningful, uh, a meaningful look into the potential risk areas for your lower risk uh, relationships. Uh, so I think that's, that's probably a good summary of the, the three levels that I would consider for uh, due diligence, Tom. Tony, could you describe uh, what is investigative tiering? Yeah, yeah, that's really just another way of saying risk-based due diligence, and it refers to the sort of processes we've been discussing around, uh, you know, conducting a risk assessment and then applying the appropriate level of diligence to the level of assessed risk for the third party. You know, you can't, why do we do this, right? Really, uh, you do this partly for efficiency. You, you, certainly, the most effective compliance program would conduct a field investigation on every third party, but as I mentioned, they're expensive, and that's obviously not practical. It's not reasonable due diligence, and that's an important adjective, I think, for all of us to consider in compliance. You know, programs still need to be reasonable. Um, and so, um, you know, we do conduct this level of course on higher-risk third parties. Uh, generally, that's uh, uh, parties operating in high-risk businesses in high-risk jurisdictions because the higher the diligence, as I mentioned before, the more you're likely to find. Um, and, and it's important to do that, uh, to that your high-risk third parties with uh, this le- this sort of level of due diligence. I mean, let's consider the Unioil case from a few years ago. And Tom, I, I know you have a long history in the oil and gas industry, so I'm sure you've paid close attention to Unioil and sort of the havoc they've wreaked on for many multinational companies. Um, you know, many companies, Honeywell, Baker Hughes, KBR, uh, Rolls-Royce, have all had some nexus to, to Unioil, and uh, it's been well publicized. And, you know, here you look at a company that's you know, posted on their website for many years that they had, you know, compliance certifications. And there was really no way that I'm aware of that you could have identified very easily the risk based on sort of public documents or online sources, at least using the standard tools that investigators use today. And a field investigation, while it may not have found it, it would have been the most effective way if you're conducting a rigorous uh, a reputation assessment uh, to potentially find some some risk associated with Unioil. That's sort of tried and true sort of you know, old school investigation techniques out on the, out on the field. Uh, but those, those work and that really helps. And I think the reputation assessment is one of the most valuable components of a, of a field investigation, really asking questions in a, in an investigative way to try to uh, uncover potential areas that, you know, may need to be further investigated, but they lead to, um, intelligence that can really help uncover, uh, a risk that wouldn't otherwise be obvious. So I think that's the basic concept of investigative peering, right? Applying the right level of diligence to the associated risk level of the third party. Tony, what um, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I was wondering if you might give a few more words on the investigative framework that you lay out in the white paper. It really refers to a, a methodical approach to conducting due diligence, really to answer the same business questions, such as I just mentioned, the reputation of the third party, but regardless of jurisdiction, and there's nuance in this. The nuance is that you may have to employ different tactics based on the region or the type of third party, or the type of relationship that they're engaged in with you or the, et cetera. And so, you know, a standard, uh, another uh, uh, standard part of our field level investigation is a site assessment. Uh, the site assessment is really about trying to understand um, 
if this uh, uh, entity or this third party relationship or this third party is is um, able to do what they say they're supposed to do, right? This is something that you even see in the FCPA resource guide from 2012. There are a number of questions that, that ask that the Justice Department and SEC say you should you should be able to ask the questions or answer the questions. Does this company um, have the means to do what you're hiring them to do? And so uh, a, rec, uh, a site assessment is doing just that. It's helping to do that, right? It's looking at their operations. It's asking, um, uh, uh, is there, you know, do they actually exist where they say they, they exist? Does the size of the operation um, uh, uh, corroborate with the, the, the supposed uh, uh, action they're going to take on your behalf? And so, you know, we've seen situations where a supposed office is actually a women's restroom or uh, an empty field. I remember one case where it was an empty field that um, they registered their office or they said they suggested it was their office or a really dingy apartment in a bad part of town. I remember one company, um, it was just a, uh, you said, how can they do this? They were supposedly going to generate tens of millions of dollars in, in, in business activity for a client. And it just didn't uh, comport with uh, the location. So, uh, we also look at well, maybe it's a uh, it looks all fine, but there's no it's the middle of the work week and there's nobody in the office that sort of thing. So, what you're looking for in the conduct of the investigation is important. Yet, you know, for in some in some countries, in the context of this idea of investigative framework and how you're you're going after the same information but having to uh, take a local nuanced approach, you know, in some countries, for example, in the Middle East, uh, what you can get stopped and detained or even arrested by authorities if you're caught taking pictures of a business operation out in the open. I mean, it really comes down to really understanding what, what the local cultural um, nuances are and, uh, and and local laws to make sure you're not doing anything illegal as well. So uh, that's, the, that's the general concept behind investigative framework. You know, maybe I'll give you one more. Another good example is in China. When you're conducting open source investigations in China, we all, we all know that there's some information available online in China that may not be available outside of China, you know, due to, in essence, what the PRC is uh, sort of containing information. It's, you often hear the Great Firewall. And so this concept of the, the Great Firewall, that some information isn't able to get into China and some information isn't able to get out of China. You know, for that reason, we use, we have analysts in China on the ground as well as outside. And we try to, we try to be able to deliver information, you know, from both inside and outside of the country. But that's another example of, of employing this investigative framework. Tony, I'd like to turn now to the issue of technology. And where do you see the critical components of an automated system around third parties and due diligence? I think like most things, um, it, it, this can seem basic on the surface. As, as you dig in, though, you start to realize there's a, there's a really a lot to consider. So uh, things like um, how do you automate the collection of information from the third party whether that's through due diligence questionnaires or some other mechanism, uh, collecting legal attestations for your, you know, anti-corruption declaration, um, automating the process of risk assessing and defining the requirements of the third-party relationship with your company, you know, based on potentially a lot of different criteria, uh, it, how they, how you're engaging with that third party, their jurisdiction or country level. The most common there is using the corruption perception index. index um, looking at various uh, other aspects to build that risk assessment. Um, you know, these requirements uh, uh, could then drive things like 
your contract provisions, or the level of training that you want to provide or you, that, that, that that's required for that third party to take, the level of due diligence that you want to conduct or need to conduct on that third party, et cetera. So there's a lot that you can automate through that. A big part of uh, automated due diligence centers on the type of information and data sets that you're going to then uh, use. So you sort of, when you think about automation, you think about the onboarding, managing and monitoring of that third-party relationship. So sort of from the onboarding, kind of what I've just described, collecting information, risk assessing that third-party, conducting certain levels of due diligence, part of that is also automated due diligence. So sanctions and watch lists, politically exposed persons data, SOE, state-owned enterprise data, negative news screening, you know, defining which list you want to screen by different types of third-parties, um, defining who's going to adjudicate the results. There's just a tremendous amount of false positives that company might need to, to sort of swim through, which means you need to really plan ahead on how you're going to automate your due diligence um, so that you're not overwhelmed with um, false positives that need to be cleared. Um, we, we, we provide the service for clearing for our clients just because it's such an area of need for companies. They don't have the headcount to support that kind of effort. So it's, a, it's pretty common in the industry to, to, to have that service. Uh, and then finally, as I referenced above, uh, you know, before analytics, uh, what reports do you want your automation to provide on a regular basis? Do you, do you need these reports on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly basis, et cetera? Um, and I think, uh, this is really, again, as I mentioned before, the linchpin to ensuring that, that you have an effective program. Um, you know, one that's credible and defensible is having the right, the right, uh, uh, reports being generated on a regular basis to help you run your program effectively. Tony, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but uh, we're going to link to this great resource in our show notes. But if uh, our listeners wanted any more information on uh, third parties, due diligence, uh, any of the concepts or ideas uh, or topics that you've raised in this podcast, where could they go? I think the easiest thing, Tom, is for listeners to go to steelglobal.com, and that's uh, S-T-E-E-L-E global.com. You can click on request a demo uh, and uh, you'll get contacted by one of our folks who can, uh, uh, they'll seek to understand your need and they'll get you connected with the right folks. So Tony, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to visit with me. Um, Our listeners do not know, but we've tried to do this several times uh, and I'm glad we were finally (laughs) able to to get a recording down. This has been a fascinating uh, podcast on a topic that, like I said, has been around. I've been in compliance since oh. Six and it's always been in the forefront of mind. So I wanted to thank you for uh, helping us work through this topic today. Thank you for having me, Tom. I greatly appreciate it. I've watched and admired your work for many years, and it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'm going to link to the Steel White Paper Third Party Due Diligence Creating a Credible and Defensible Program. You should definitely uh, download the white paper. It provides a, a lot more information than we were able to touch on in this podcast. Also, if you have not done so, please rate our podcast on iTunes as it would help in our rankings. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.